Hand me in a wig. I, I like that. Is that what you wear during the week to work? I just want to make uh, just a plug here. Did you hear one of those young men say this? I am an investment. I spent decades working with teenagers, and my wife spent close to 40 years working with children. And a lot of that we did as volunteers. And I just want to ask you, we need our best people working with children and youth. Surely you got an hour once a week on a Sunday. You got an hour you can invest in our kids. Uh, We could use about 20 people right now. So after the service is over, go out to the table and find out how you can help. And Lord, we ask as we open your holy word that you would teach us by your spirit and we leave from here refreshed and changed in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. Okay, the title of what we're studying is The Glorious Wedding of the Lamb. We're going chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation. Uh, hold your Bibles up. You got a Bible? Bring your Bible. Bring the Bible. Read your Bible. Mark your Bible up. It's a great, great practice. Let's start at Revelation 19. We'll start the first six verses. And I'm reading out of English Standard today. Sometimes I switch up. After this, John says, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Everyone say hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true. He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah, said. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders, how many were there? And the four living creatures, how many were there? They fell down. And they worship God who was seated on the throne saying this, Amen, hallelujah, say hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, say it again. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Now, this this passage, these ten verses are so intriguing. I mean, there's so much to learn. It's like putting pieces of the puzzle together to make them connect. And I said at the top of your outline, please take notes. There's two signs. In this passage, that show us the end is near of this age and a new age just around the corner. And the first sign is the word hallelujah. And it's strange here. Why is it strange? It's used four times in these verses. Four times. Well, what's strange about it? It's found no other place in the New Testament. 
Which means what we're reading about is very, very, very special. Now, three times, there's a group that John writes, and he calls them the multitude. And they cry out. They scream out, hallelujah, because they're grateful. They are praising. And then there's the 24 elders. Now, I've not been to heaven And the word of God is without error, but my teaching always has some error because I'm imperfect and everyone who teaches the scripture doesn't get it all, especially when it comes to revelation. Who are the 24 elders? My guess they are the greatest human servants that lived on earth over the span of time. And they are the most honored And they and the four living creatures, I think, are the most powerful, the most influential leaders in heaven. Why do you say that? Because they are the closest to the throne. And these two groups, they fall on their face and they say, amen. Say it with me, please. Amen. Amen. And amen, amen means what? We agree. We agree. Hallelujah. Now, you're a little pastor growing up. I came from a good family, but I played sports and I ran around with bad folk. And I got in trouble because I ran. You run with bad people, you're going to end up doing bad stuff. And your little pastor had a potty mouth. Man, did I have a potty mouth. Ask your neighbor if they had a potty mouth. I had a potty mouth until the day I was saved. And when I was saved at 18, it just left. It just vanished. But I swore like a sailor. And I think saying things like praise the Lord and amen are better than my old potty mouth days. Someone say amen. Thank you that our pastor is no longer a potty mouth. So the word hallelujah, I don't want to give terms. I want to attempt to define the things in the scripture because It means a lot more when you know what you're talking about. It means this. Hallelujah means you praise the Lord. Heaven says, Steve, you praise the Lord. Everyone say, you praise the Lord. Also turn to your neighbor. We ask if they were potty mouth. Now let's do it. Let's be nicer. Say, go ahead. Say, you praise the Lord. Go ahead. Say say it again. You praise the Lord. You might even say, you praise the Lord, please. I mean, that's nice. That's what hallelujah means. It's time to praise the Lord. Or you praise Yah. What do you mean, Yah? It is, it is, I'll tell you a little bit more about it. The word hallelujah, if you divide it in two, the first part, Hebrew, means praise. And the word Yah is the short form of the sacred Name of God. Strict Jews would not say the name Yahweh, Yahweh, or Jehovah. They would not say that because they did not want to be found guilty of breaking the third commandment, which says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Because God will not leave that person unpunished. Very serious thing. If you are a Christian, are you a Christian? Yes or no? 
You're a follower of Christ. Christian means little Christ. You're a follower, little follower. And so you may not have a potty mouth anymore, but maybe you don't live quite the way you should. There's a little bit of hypocrisy in you. That's also taking the name of the Lord. You profess something, but you live differently. You act differently. That's also taking the name of the Lord in vain. So an observant, dedicated Jew then, 2,000 years ago and today, when they're reading the scripture in Hebrew and they get to the name Yahweh, they will substitute another name, another word, Adonai. Everyone say Adonai. Why would they do that, Steve? Okay, Adonai means Lord, or precisely it means my Lord. Isn't that awesome? Like, Jehovah is my Lord. Adonai is my Lord. I've chosen him, and he has chosen me. My Lord, because their thought was, his name is too holy to speak. Now, I was in Israel. When was I in Israel? I was there in May. And I was with some Orthodox Jews. They were not followers of Christ, but they were Orthodox Jews. And they would use a term I did not know when it came to God. They would say Hashem, which was a reverent name for God. They would not use the word God. And so, and, and it's my understanding that the church through the centuries has followed the same practice because the Bible on your lap, when it is translated from Hebrew and they get to the word Yahweh, they translate it as Lord in your Bible and my Bible. So this is kind of odd, but I want you to know. Uh, so, So therefore, a title for God is being used most of the time instead of a personal name. So when you say hallelujah, this is cool. You ready? When you say hallelujah, you are offering praise to the very name of the one true God. And that is good when you use the word hallelujah. So we see heaven. We just read it. We finished chapter 18 last week. The week before, chapter 17. A lot of hard things, judgments on earth, a lot of difficulty. Now everything turns. And we see rejoicing in heaven. And it's in contrast to the earth dwellers that are still around because they're angry. They are mad. They are murderous. Well, how mad are they? We'll see next week in the rest of the chapter, they decide to wage war against Jesus. That's the dumbest thing ever. But that's what they do. So heaven rejoices for four reasons. It's right in the text. The first reason is the great harlot, the great prostitute, this false religious system concocted by Satan 
and utilized by the Antichrist has now bitten the dust. We read that last week. And so the response of heaven, because the one that had enslaved billions of people was now down, the response is hallelujah. Would you say it please? One more time, say it hallelujah. I mean, we should rejoice. It's pretty cool. And then the next time we see it, heaven rejoices because the empire of the Antichrist is in cinders. And her smoke is going up. And so all heaven is pretty excited. Matter of fact, would you be excited if all evil was done? No more evil, no more devil, no more flesh, no more murder, no more war. And so what do you think heaven says? Say it with me, halla. One more time, say it a little louder, halla. Amen. And the fourth time, the greatest leaders in heaven give glory to God. And I think this is actually the third time. Now, there's a lot of mystery in all this. And I only know half of a fingernail. But the four living creatures are called seraphim or seraphim. Say seraphim. And in Hebrew, the word seraphim means the burning ones. Why are they burning? For the glory of God. For the passion of the one on the throne, for the excitement of what's happening on the earth. Let me tell you what little I know about the seraphim. They have four faces. Each one of the four has a face of an ox. Each one of the four has a face of a man. Each one of the four has a face of a lion. Each one of the four has a face of an eagle. Why, Steve? Scripture does not explain, but in the four Gospels, you see the same thing. You see the character of the Lord Jesus. He's the servant in Matthew. You see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see the ox, the lion, the eagle, and the son of man who came to die. As our substitute. Now these mighty majestic creatures all have six wings. How many wings? Six wings. And their entire body is full of eyes. What does that symbolize? My guess is it's telling you they know everything and they see everything and nothing escapes their notice. And the ministry of the, uh, that they have can be everywhere. And they say over and over and over in worship, they lead worship in heaven, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth is filled with his glory. Try getting up every morning and saying that before you do anything. And then actually the last hallelujah is because heaven rejoices Because they know who's on the throne. Do you know who's on the throne? Who is on the throne? The Lord God Almighty who made heaven and earth. And if he's on the throne, if he's got all power, what are you worried about? What are you complaining about? 
Why are you letting stuff derail you and your faith and your love for God? He's got you. You win. Every problem in this world is all temporary. And heaven sees that. So therefore heaven says what heaven should say. And they say what? One more time. Say it again. Say it a little louder. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Woo. It's all right. Now let's read a little bit further. Verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad. Let us give him the glory for the marriage. Here's a second clue. Here's a second sign. The marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And in the fine linen, for the fine fine linen, I'd never seen this before, are the righteous deeds of the saints. That's me and you. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. I mean, he, this creature is so glorious, so powerful, so majestic. And John in his brokenness and humility just goes, oh my goodness. And he worships him. By the way, you never worship a created being, only the one true God. And the angel says, do not do this. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. You worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So here's the second sign. Did you get it? What's the second sign? What is this on the screen? It's a marriage invitation. Have you ever had a marriage invitation? Have you ever been to a wedding? Your own wedding? This is the second sign. John's told to write, Blessed are those who receive the invitation, who say yes to the invitation, who enjoy the invitation. Blessed are those. Now also, I want you to see in these two chapters we've been in, there's three powerful contrasts. Why would the Lord give us contrast? Contrast are pictures. It's so we can learn. The first contrast are cities. One is Babylon the Great that has fallen. The other city we will see in two weeks is the New Jerusalem. Coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. So we we see two cities, one dark. One enslaving, the other one beautiful and glorious. Then we see two women. We see the great harlot, this system of religious lies. It will be prominent on the earth that will enslave billions of people. Then we see the bride of Christ. One beautiful and one malignant. Then the third contrast, have you ever had a bad meal? You ever been to a restaurant and you just went, nope, not going to do it, not going to do it, not going in there again, it can't drag me with a horse and chains, not going in that place again, whoa, well, there's one dinner you don't want to go to, and we will read about it next week, 
I'll give you a hint. There's a lot of birds in the sky. Jesus said, come, assemble for the great supper of God. Contrasted with the best dinner ever. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, Jesus told a parable, and I want you all to turn your Bibles. Go to the left to Matthew chapter 22. I want to give you another picture. Matthew 22, Jesus told a very important story called a parable. And let me read part of it quickly for you. You found it? Everybody got it? You found it? Chapter 22. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, well, you tell those who are invited, I've prepared my dinner. The party is ready. I've killed the oxen. My fatted calves have been slaughtered. Everything is now ready. I want my friends to come to the wedding feast to honor my son. Look strangely, but they paid how much attention? No attention. And they went off. One guy went back to his farm. Another guy went to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them badly, and actually killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and to destroy those murderers and burn their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the roads and the byways. I want you to invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Those servants went out into the roads and gathered all who could be found. Some were bad people. Some were good people, so the wedding hall was filled with the guests. Verse 11, then the king came in to look at the guests, and he noticed the man there had, had no wedding garments. And he said to him, friend, uh, excuse me, hello, how did you get in here? You don't have any wedding garments. And the man was speechless, and the king said to his servants, grab that guy, tie him up hand and foot, Cast him into that place of outer darkness and that place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now the question is, why did Jesus tell this parable? Do you see it? He's talking about a real event that was coming. That was important to him. And important to the Father. Then he went on to, uh, to talk about all those people who were given the invitation, but they were too busy. They didn't want to come. They didn't want to say yeah, so they didn't come. Actually, this was directed at Jesus' own people, the Jews. 
They were the chosen people who chose most of them not to participate because the king is the same way today. People are given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity by the most magnificent person ever, the true and living God who is kind and gracious, loving and holy, and they thumbed their noses in his face and took their thumb and thumbed him in the eye saying, leave me alone. I don't want to come to your stupid party. They paid no attention and they actually killed the messengers. That is the prophets. And they would kill Jesus. So, How would a loving, kind, gracious, but holy, all-wise God feel after being treated so disdainfully? And those who scoffed, well, why do I have to be dressed that way? I want to come in my own stuff. I want to come my own way. I want to show up when I want to. And the story goes on to say the king noticed a guy who was not dressed appropriately. And he said, "How did excuse me, how'd you get in here? Well, I came on my own accord. I came on my own way. And I came with my own values. And essentially it's saying, you believe your own self-righteousness can get you into heaven? Sir, it will not. It is insulting to the true and living God. Now, you and I should rejoice and be glad. Is that true or false? Do you do that every day? Do you rejoice? Are you glad that your name, you got the invitation, your name is in the book of life, you've given your heart to Christ. We should be happy the rest of our life. We should have be joyful the rest of our life because we see the big picture. This other stuff is temporary. And the scripture says, rejoice and be glad for the bride who is you, you and I, we are the bride, has made herself ready. I want to ask you, are you making yourself ready? Yeah, I'm born again. I've given your heart to Jesus. Well, are you serving Jesus? In Hebrew culture, I just want to show you some little clues that make this so much more meaningful. In Hebrew culture, there were three steps to getting married. Young man, young woman wanted to get married. Maybe the family had known each other for over a decade, maybe longer. So here's the three steps. The first one is the engagement. Everyone say engagement or the betrothal, betrothal, okay? And that happens when the prospective groom, he makes the trip to the bride's house with his best man, his best friend, and some of his friends, and they get there, and the groom finalizes arrangements for the dowry or the purchase price. Did you realize you have been purchased? 
You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's how the custom was. Now to my beloved wife, I do not know why she loves me like she does, but she does. And so, you know, I'm, did you know I mess with people? I tease and poke fun of two kinds of people, people I know and people I don't know. So sometimes, I, I, it's been a while, but sometimes I would say, you know, since your parents died before I met you, and your oldest brother, Jim, was the patriarch of the family. You know I had to do a dowry. I had to do a broad deal with you. I had to purchase you. You know that. You did not. Yes, I did. What? You know what I paid for you? I, I paid two bird dogs, a Persian cat, and a sack full of apples for you. And sometimes I'll say, I, I bought you with a bicycle and a Hereford bull or uh, Clemson football tickets on the 50-yard line. That's what I got for you. And my wife, who's a lot smarter than me, I'd say, you know what I pay for you? And she'd always tell me, well, it doesn't really matter. i go, why does it really matter? Because it wasn't enough. <laughs> and say, so she got me there. I kind of shut up and stopped that line of thought. Do, do you know what God paid for you? Do you have any clue? What God paid for you? Can I show you what God paid for you? This is what God paid for you. The pearl of great price. You are the pearl of great price. He took the greatest treasure in heaven, his son Jesus Christ, and sent him as a ransom payment, a down payment, a dowry, a bride price for you. And for me, he gave, he emptied heaven of treasure for you. Don't ever listen to the lies of the devil that God doesn't love you. Look at the picture. And guess what? It was enough. Someone say, praise the Lord. It was enough. It was enough. It was enough forever. And I'll never get tired of telling that story to people. I love going on the highways. I love giving out tracts. I love sharing my faith. Somebody asks me to preach, I go. Uh, if somebody asks me to do a funeral, I do it if I can. I go everywhere I can. I want to tell people that they're invited. They're wanted. They're welcome. Now, once the bride price was officially accepted... It was a done deal. Technically, the marriage was in effect. The young man and the young woman were legally married. Here's a drawing of that young woman, Mary, in Nazareth, getting an appearance by the greatest archangel of all time, Gabriel. And Gabriel says, Hail, favored one. And he announces the plan of heaven that she would carry the Messiah. And that was good for us. And that was hard for her because she was engaged. She was legally married, even though they had never been together. They had never cohabitated together. 
But she had to go get that fine young man that she probably loved with all her heart and say, we have to talk. I'm pregnant. And God is the father. I'll tell you what, that, that must have been the most uncomfortable conversation in the New Testament. And you know what Joseph, the scripture says about Joseph being a righteous man? He was not going to embarrass her, but he was going to divorce her. It required a divorce privately so she wouldn't be stoned as an adulteress. And then after the bride price was agreed upon, a cup of wine would be shared with the young man and the young woman. And it would establish a new covenant. Now, Jesus' last night on the planet, in the upper room, we celebrate it when we take the Lord's table. This is what we're celebrating. Because Jesus took a cup just like the bridegroom took the cup offered it to his men and said, this is the cup poured out for you of the new covenant and I'm sealing it with my blood. The second stage was the preparation. Everyone say preparation. What do you mean the preparation? Well, the young man would go back to his father's house. If you've ever seen this in the gospels, Jesus says it a lot. I must return to my father's house. That's a picture of the wedding. I'm going back to my father's house. And the young groom would take roughly 12 months and build an addition onto his father's house. So he and the bride could live together at the father's house. Are you tracking with me? Do you see where this is going? John 14, Jesus also said in the upper room, he had to tell the boys this. Say it with me, please. Read it, please. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. Now, I built a couple of houses, but could you imagine this place has been under construction for 2,000 years? The angelic architects, the angelic construction crews that are building your home, and it still is not finished. Read it with me. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That place is more real than Moscow. That place is more real than New York City. That place is more real than Buenos Aires. That place is more real than London. It is a real place. That is your home. This world is not your home. And then the third part is the actual wedding and the celebration and the reception. So after the end of the betrothal period, the bridegroom dressed in festive attire, his best stuff. 
and accompanied by his best man and his family and his friends, they would come back, make their way back to the bride's home. And people in the village, or at least the two families, had a general idea when it would happen. This is, this is kind of neat. But they would not know the day or the hour. It was a surprise. Do you know Jesus said that very same thing when I come back? No man knows the day. No man knows the hour. I don't even know it except my father when he tells me, go get your girl. And his arrival would be proceeded with a shout. Shout is found in Matthew 25. Here is the bridegroom. Come out. Come out. Everyone come out to meet her. And the parallel passages in 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul said, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout like the voice of the archangel. So with great joy, this beautiful young woman, veiled, accompanied by her maidens, all carrying lamps. Most of the time, I've been told, these Jewish, the bridegroom would come at night. Who knows? I don't know if Jesus may not come back at night, but the bridegroom would come at night. So she and her entourage and family would join the groom and his attendants, and the wedding would take place, and the reception and the festival and celebration would commence. Here's what's so odd, so wonderful and different from ours. The wedding party festival would last at least a week. Sometimes two. Could you imagine the expense? And we see it. We see it before Jesus has done his first miracle, before he started his ministry. He is at a wedding in Cana, and it's been going on, and food is getting short. And most important, the wine is gone. And the mother, Mary, comes over and pulls her oldest son and says, Son, uh, you know they're out of wine. You're seeing that, right? And Jesus says, Well, Mom, we... Mom, everyone say that, Mom, what does that have to do with me? I'm not even starting my work yet. And she said, she she just walks away from him and says to a servant, whatever he says to do, you do it. Moms have such a way of just getting their sons to do stuff. And here's a thought that the millennium reign may be the party, thousand years. Someone say amen. amen. Now let's, let's run another parallel. Jesus' return and the marriage supper of the Lamb like a really good marriage on the planet. What makes a really good marriage? Well, when the couple is always helpful to each other. Where they're supportive during times of difficulty and every marriage and family will have really hard things happen. When there's intimacy 
intimacy is not about sexual relationship. It's about how close you are. Where you have great trust in each other. Trust is the basis of all relationships. You work side by side. And Sue and I have worked side by side for 43 years. There is forgiveness when we mess up. We are best friends. We enjoy each other. You say, Steve, come on. I know what the divorce rate is. I know what problems I've had in my own marriage. Is this really practical? Absolutely. Write this down. You need to write this down. Every person in the room, write this down. True love is not about feelings. You marry because of feelings, you're going to be in trouble in six months. Because the feelings dissipate. True love is based on actions. Love is not a feeling. Love is a verb. If you do the right actions, you will have the right feelings. You serve each other. You help each other. You decide to keep growing closer and stronger. You want to be better this week than you were last week. Better father, better husband, better servant than you were. You're never content with staying where you are. And this is the key to having a good marriage. If you just do this, if you just do this, you will have a great marriage. What is it? You treat each other better than anyone else in the world. See, people start off doing that when they're dating at first year of marriage. But I've seen so many couples that actually treat each other worse than anybody else on the planet. Don't do that. Don't do that. Real love, biblical love, strong love is a skill set that you got to learn. It takes time. You say, well, my parents divorced. I've been in four generations of divorce. There's so much anger and hostility and alcoholism in my family. We just have had a horrible run. How do we do it? I want you to know at Church of the Savior, we have marriage coaching. You can learn to be a good husband. You can learn to be a respectful wife. We meet four Saturdays a year. And it's been a blessing to my wife and I. Your marriage can't get warmer and brighter like a campfire. You know what the key to a campfire is? You feed the fire. So what you want to do is invest good things in your marriage and stop Those negative things. Keep your mouth shut. Stop nagging. Stop condemning. Stop complaining. Start lifting and loving and blessing. That's how you can have a good marriage. You say, well, it's just me. My husband is this or my wife is that. Why do I have to wait for... If I wait for them, it'll never happen. Well, how about you be the person? It only takes one. Love never fails. 
Boy, how about that sermon? That was great. I didn't mean to do all that. Whoa. Now I'm in trouble because I said all of it. My wife knows it. Now I've got to really do it, you know? So what is the Lord looking for? What's the one thing he wants more than anything else from you? Do you know what it is? Is it, does he want you to be a servant? Does he want warriors? Is it about donors? Is it about workers? Is it about builders? Do you have to be really smart? Or do you have to be perfect? Do you know what he really wants more than anything else? And we all qualify. You're all on equal level. He's looking for lovers. And you can be a great lover of God. It's a lifetime. And no matter how you fail, you can start today. Read this verse. Greatest verse in the New Testament. Say with me, please. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is a great and first commandment. Now, I want you to write this down. If you don't write anything else, don't write this down. Write this down. Write this down. This will save your little bacon. And your sausage, too. The love of God will keep you in times of difficulty when nothing else will. You're in a situation you don't like it. situation you don't understand it. You feel like God's left you. Nothing's working. People have betrayed you. People have hurt you. And yet I can always go back. Lord, I don't like this, but I love you with all my heart. And I will never stop loving you because you're going to get me through it. It's all temporary. David was a very, very flawed man. Very flawed man. But there's something about King David that God would look And talk to the angels in heaven. You see that guy right down there? That is a man after my heart. That man loves me like nobody else. And years ago I said, Lord, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. Do you notice anybody in there that you wouldn't hardly recognize today? It's been 437 years ago. This is also important for you to write down. Marriage, family, all relationships, even people that hate your guts and enemies, they are all a test, a laboratory to see. If you're willing to learn to love like God loves, To see if you're willing to forgive when it's hard. To see if you're willing to serve. You choose the role of the servant to see if you're willing to be faithful. To see if you you will be responsible when nobody else is responsible. You will be the responsible one. That you will ask the Lord to teach you the ways of God. And that you will walk in greater and greater measure of humility which is attractive to him. It's these hard relationships that teach you these things. And if you don't learn, God will keep bringing hard things into your life to make sure you learn. And really this life on this planet, this short life is training for the next world. 
Steve, will you learn to love people like I love people? Steve, will you ask me to make you more like my son, Jesus Christ? Because the real life is the next life. This life is just a dress rehearsal. But you got to invest in your love, in your relationship with God, just like you invest in your marriage. Coming up next week, there's over 50 small groups where you can be discipled. You can grow in your faith. You can learn how to do things. You can make Christian friends to work with, but you have to pull the trigger and choose. Let me keep moving here. Let me talk about the opposite of the love of God. And it's idolatry. Everyone say idolatry. You know what idolatry is? It's anything that you put before God. You may not have a golden calf in your front yard. You may not have a statue of Baal in your living room. But idolatry is the opposite of devotion to God because idolatry feeds your selfishness. It feeds your flesh. And it's hurtful to the Father because if you're a Christian, you made a covenant with Him that you would love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but your calendar shows different. Because you got an idol in your heart. Well, like, what kind of idol? Well, what are you worshiping? You have no time for the scripture, but you got. 15 hours for Facebook. You have no time for prayer, but you got 20 hours of video games. You got no time to serve the Lord, and yet you spend 20 hours in your garden. You have no time to share the gospel with people around you, and yet three times a day, you're checking your investment portfolio. John wrote that the wedding clothing of those gathered at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Worship team, would you guys come out? Reflected. The garments reflect two things. The righteousness of Jesus by his blood. But I've never seen this before. Apparently, in the next realm, your garments reflect how faithful you were to serve Jesus. Your heart, your worship. It says, clothe her with fine linen, the fine linen of the righteous acts of the saints. Why? Because he wants to say thank you. He wants to honor you. He wants to say how appreciative he is. And John finishes up in verse 9. He says, and boy, I'm so glad. These are the true words. Everyone say true words. True words of God. You can take this to the bank. You can count on it. You can stake your life on it. Then he said, the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. What is that? Well, it means the essence of the prophetic is simply to touch the heart of Jesus and know what is dear to him, what he cares about, and it's confirmed in his holy word. As we close this time before we worship with our final song, 
I want to go back to the second chapter. Is there a chance that your love for Jesus has cooled off? Your commitment to him is not what it once was? you kind of been doing this instead of doing this? And I would invite you to come to the altar. I love coming to the altar because I humble myself. And when my, my knees go down, my heart flies open. I want to pray for you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Lord Jesus, we want to be marked as people that love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind and strength. Lord, give us a hunger to know you, to walk with you, to obey you. Give us a supernatural love for everyone who asks for it that will keep us through the hard times. Altar is open. Come and do business with the Lord.
Jesus, thank you for helping us today. For anyone today watching online or in the room, if you'd like to surrender your life to Christ, pray with me now and just say, Lord Jesus, I need you. Come into my heart. Be my king, my Lord, my master, because I give you everything today. Cleanse me of sin and make me your child and help me to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day. Serve the Lord well. There's people that will pray with you. If you prayed that prayer, come over and see me. Pick up your children. Bless you. Thank you for joining us online today at Church of the Savior. We hope you were encouraged to grow in your walk with Jesus. If you made a decision to follow Jesus for the first time today, please reach out to us. We would love to help you take your next step. Please visit our website for more information on upcoming events and how you can connect with our COS family. There's also a prayer request form where you can let us know how we can be praying for you. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope to see you next week.